Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Okay, wow. Do I have a podcast episode for you? Um, When I started this podcast over four years ago, never did I ever think that I would be sitting down with the Dr. Mark Pimentel. It's a bit of a surreal moment for me, to be honest with you. I never thought that I would have the the um, the privilege to sit down with somebody who I've looked up to, and quite frankly, every single person in my field has looked up to for a great many years. Um, Dr. Mark Pimentel is the professor of medicine at Geffen School of Medicine and Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA, California. He's very active in research um, and has served as the principal investigator for a lot of different clinical studies in the areas of IBS, um, of SIBO, the connection between our gut flora and disease. He truly is an expert in his field. One of the reasons that I respect his work so much and look to his work so much when I am um, when I'm in practice and mentoring my clinicians in the Functional Nutrition Academy is because he's not just a researcher. He's also a clinician. So he's taking the research and applying it to human bodies. That is so important. Um, it, it's We can learn a lot through research, but it's really the act of taking that information and applying it to actual humans that... Um, that, w- that we learn so much. And so I'm always trying, when I'm learning, when I'm deciding who I learn from and what information I'm taking, I'm always looking for somebody who's who, yes, understands the research or is conducting the research themselves, but also working with human bodies. That's so important. I will say that this is going to be a higher level um, podcast interview. I know that I have a lot of clinicians that listen to the show, a lot of practitioners that listen to the show. So hopefully you really glean a lot from this conversation. I was definitely asking questions that I wanted the answers to. Now, if you are not a clinician, there's still a lot of really good information here, especially if you're somebody who has struggled with IBS, you've been diagnosed with IBS, or you've suspected SIBO, or you've been diagnosed with SIBO. There's a lot of really rich conversation here. If you are brand new to the show, welcome. What an episode to come in on. <laughs> really glad to have you here. I hope you, you glean a lot from this conversation. I very much encourage you to, to stay all the way to the very end because uh, Dr. Pimentel shares with us his thoughts on the low FODMAP diet. That's something that we've talked about here on the show before. He shares his uh, thoughts with 
when we're trying to kill off bacteria, especially in the small intestine, do we feed them? Do we starve them? There's a little bit of debate about that. So he kind of sets the record straight, at least how he sees it. I really love his reaction when we talk about how patients are being dismissed in the world of uh, gastroenterology, where where uh, clients are being told that you know this is all in your head, this is not really happening, or it's all because of stress. He really sets the record straight there. And I would say that if your own doctor is saying something other than what Dr. Mark Pimentel is saying in regards to IBS or SIBO, perhaps send them this podcast episode because they might learn a thing or two. And it's really coming from a true expert. So let me read you a few of Dr. Pimentel's um, most significant accomplishments. This is like, <laughs> this reads like I joked with him at the start of the show. I'm like, have, has anyone ever called you an overachiever? Because listen to this list. He discovered rifaximin. Um, so many people, many of you listeners might know what rifaximin is. It's the antibiotic that we use to treat SIBO. So he discovered rifaximin as a treatment for IBS and SIBO. He developed the first blood test for IBS on the basis of IBS being derived from acute gastroenteritis. That's food poisoning. We're going to talk about that on today's show. Uh, he described the association between IBS and bacterial overgrowth, so made those made that connection, um, and that really forms the basis for microbiome therapies in SIBO. He uncovered the methanogen, methanobrevibacter smithii, as an agent for causing constipation. So now it's widely known, widely accepted, that an overgrowth of methanogens or that methane gas can lead to slow motility, sluggish bowels, constipation in humans. Hey, guess who've discovered that? This guy. This guy did. And he also discovered the use of lovostatin as a microbiome treatment for constipation. So we're going to talk about that too, because that's, that's a question that I had. There are two specific tests that we're going to talk about today that he helped co-create. One is called IBS Smart, and the other is Trio Smart. So the IBS Smart is a blood test. Trio Smart is a breath test looking at for three different gases. These are both tests that I run in my own practice. So if you're looking for one-on-one digestive support, gut health support, functional lab testing, um, you can head to my website, erinholthealth.com forward slash membership. That's That breaks down the way that I work with clients on a one-on-one basis. Fill out the application form there. We'll go through it. We'll make sure we're a good fit. We always are really mindful that we take on clients who we feel that um, our skill set actually aligns with. We can actually help you and we will get back to you with the next steps. And before we start off the show, we got a shout out show sponsor, BioCult. Their boosted product is a multi-strain probiotic with four times the concentration of their original formula. That's why I like this one. It packs a good punch. All of their probiotic strains are backed by clinical research. It really makes a great everyday probiotic. I heard from a listener recently, this stuff has changed me, she said. So it's great stuff and there's no need to refrigerate it. So really handy to have around and to travel with, which is always a good idea. If you're like me, your gut gets a little cranky when you travel, when you're off your normal routine. So taking a probiotic can help with that. It can also, those capsules can be pulled apart. So you can give it to your kiddos by sprinkling it into their yogurt or their um, oatmeal. I put it into a little shot glass with water and Hattie shoots it back. So if you want to check out that probiotic, head to their website using the link in our bio. Use code FUNK15 to save 15%. Okay, so it is a very exciting honor and quite frankly, a career highlight to be able to say, here's Dr. Mark Pimentel. 
Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. It's truly an honor. I'm, I'm excited to ask you lots of questions. It's great to be with you too, Erin, and, and I look forward to the questions. So let's get going. Um, I want to first start off by saying the, I, I've always really appreciated your work. Uh, because you're a researcher, I mean, we, we need research, obviously, but what I really respect is that you're also a clinician. So I think there can sometimes be like a, a little bit of a gap or a hiccup when we take research, right? Because then we have to actually apply it to human bodies. And that's where the disconnect sometimes happens. So I, it's always nice. I always really try to learn uh, from people who are not just doing the research, but also in the field working with actual human beings, because um, that's kind of a horse of a different color sometimes. A, I think, you, you know, at, in the, at the start of this, I read your intro and it's just basically like a laundry list of accomplishments. Does, does anyone ever call you an overachiever sometimes? <laughs> you know, uh, my father once told me, he, he was first generation immigrant. He once told me, he says, uh, if I give you one piece of advice, if you can keep going. And so I keep going, but you know, the, the reward in all of this is not the sense of achievement for me, the reward in all of this is how many people we've touched and helped around the world with the things we've discovered. And, and every day I'm a, I appreciate that, but, it, but, you know, this year I lost a patient, a patient passed away from, uh, you know, some severe motility disorder. She's third in her thirties. So it, it's a reminder that we're not done. We can't be done. I mean, we can't let this happen to young people. And so, you know, as much as we want to, you know, be happy about our accomplishments and how much we've done. There's still more to do. That's another thing that I appreciate. Anytime I've heard, I've heard you talk, it, you always kind of reinforce this idea that there's so much left to learn. And I think I, whenever I hear anyone talking about SIBO in particular with like a very definitive attitude of this is the way and this is the treatment and this is the approach, it always gives me cause for, you know, concern because I'm like that to me tells me that perhaps you lack experience or just lack knowledge that there's so much more out there that needs to be discovered and so many more answers that we have. So I think sometimes, you know, in four, over four years of podcasting, I haven't talked about SIBO. I haven't done a SIBO show because I'm like, there's so much nuance. There's so much context. There's, there's so many little offshoots of the conversation that need to be had before we can just say, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Um, but you have made a tremendous amount of discoveries, not just with treatment strategies, but also with testing in our understanding of IBS in, and SIBO. So I thought that would be a great place to start is what is the leading cause of IBS? Because IBS is such a, a big diagnosis. So many people receive that diagnosis, but without really understanding that there's, there's a, uh, there's a cause there. So what in your eyes is, is the leading cause? Well, I, I think we all have to reflect back on how it used to be thought of. And, and in IBS, it used to be thought of in the nineties and eighties as well, you know, we ruled out this, we ruled out that we got this leftover group of patients. So let's lump them together as a wastebasket diagnosis and call it irritable bowel syndrome because they have change in bowel function, abdominal pain and bloating, but without something you can see with your eyes with a scope or some, or, or that type of technique. And, and the other thing that happens in medicine, that's sort of a shameful thing that we should be, we should, you know, wear as a sad badge on our shoulder is that when we don't understand something, often clinicians say, well, it's due to stress or it's due to anxiety. 
or, you know, women get anxiety more than men, and that's why they have more IBS. And this kind of sort of nonsense that that was part of the, 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 you know, the dialogue in the 80s and 90s. But what we know now is that at least 60% of this, at least the diarrhea side of IBS starts from food poisoning. So we now know this, and I'm fast forwarding a lot of research up to 2021 to say that, but we almost know more. I would, let me say it again. I think we know more about the cause of IBS, at least in that category, than we do Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, even though there's a ton of drugs in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Uh, they're, they're treating the inflammation. They're not treating the cause. Uh, and so I think we're closer to the root cause of IBS, at least in the 60% of the subset. Now, you, you, there's a blood test that I would love to talk about because I think that this, a lot of people are still aren't aware of this, maybe more so in the, the functional um, integrative world. Um, but I mean, I, I had a client recently within the past few years, go to her gastroenterologist. And he said, I'm going to tell you what I tell all of my patients. The B in SIBO stands for bogus. So we're still seeing this kind of like, it doesn't exist. It's not real. It's not happening. IBS I had another, uh, client who's gastroenterologist pointed to her brain and said, this isn't an issue down there. It's an issue up here. And of course we know that the mind and the gut are connected. Nobody's arguing that, but to just kind of swipe these women and these people away and say, there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head. You're kind of crazy. You know, there's nothing we can do for you. I don't know. It just drops people into a bucket. Um, so let's, let's talk about that blood test and what specifically you're looking for on that blood test, what it can tell us. Well, let me address those two doctors first. If you see a doctor and they do that, go to another doctor. Bottom line, it's garbage. Uh, you know, one of my senior colleagues once said on a podium teaching fellows preparing for exams that this was in 2018, that disease, the IBS is a disease of hysterical women. Are you kidding me? On the podium. Uh, so the shame in this is not over. We are still educating. But let's talk about the blood test, because I know that's your, the principal point of your question. And, and, and it just gets my blood boiling when you tell me stories like you just did. Um, so we now know for a fact, because there is no science, that stress and anxiety did not cause IBS period. We know it's a modifier. It's a modifier of blood pressure. It's a modifier of Crohn's disease. It's a modifier of anxiety and depression. So fine, we'll take it as a modifier, but it is not a cause. Food poisoning is the cause. And so what we've identified in, in through animal models and other uh, studies we've done is that a particular toxin on food poisoning is the cause. It's the CDTB toxin. And by knowing this, we're able to measure the antibodies to this toxin in the bloodstream. And what we quickly learned was the toxin was actually making you autoimmune to yourself and autoimmune to a protein called vinculin. And so there's two markers, anti-CDTB and anti-vinculin that can be measured in the blood. And the higher the vinculin is, what it does is it causes the gut to have nerve damage, so, so to speak. The special cells of the, of the gut that make the cleaning waves of the gut work are reduced in number. And then the gut doesn't flow correctly and then you get a buildup of bacteria. But the point is the real important part of the blood test is if the blood test is positive, more than 90%, you have IBS. If both are positive, 98%, you have IBS. Patient now knows they have a, a condition called post-infectious IBS. They can stop doing all the stupid tests and wasting money. And third, they can get to treatments. But fourth, 
if you have that, you can't get food poisoning again because it'll make the antibodies go up. There's a lot of value in having that test. I mean, I literally do it in all my diarrhea patients. And, and I know you said at the top of the show that nat, uh, functional medicine folks are using it, but a lot of gastroenterologists are already starting to use it. So, so it's, it is, it is mainstream. It's published science. It's not, it's not, uh, you know, it, it is legitimate science and, and we're going to publish a number of papers this year that even further describe it and legitimize it. You are a paper publishing machine. <laughs> um, so that was actually one of the questions that I had if on that test, if one, if, if one is elevated and the other is not, we can still infer that it's, it's post-infectious IBS, at least 90%. Right. So I know your viewers can't see my hands and I'm not going to just show, draw the lines of the curve, but early in an infection. So let's say you had an infection three weeks ago, like food poisoning. The CDTB antibodies will come up very quickly, usually within a few weeks. The antivinculin doesn't come up for months. So there can be a period of time where your CDTB is high and your vinculin is not yet elevated. And then later, let's say four years from now, you've got all this auto antibodies running around, but you haven't had food poisoning in four years, so the other one's down. So what we see in patients who've had chronic IBS for a number of years is more often the vinculin's up, but the CDTB is down. So it just depends on where you are in your journey on the post-infectious as to whether one is elevated or both or just the vinculin. So, well, have you ever seen it flipped? Because I've seen that on a lab before where the vinculin was not elevated, but the, the bacterial toxin was. Yeah. So that's one of two possibilities. It's early after the infection, or the other possibility is that the person just won't generate the, uh, the autoimmunity. I love it if I see that because I've had a number of patients where I see that picture where the CDTB antibodies are elevated and I follow them and they go down over time. As long as you don't get food poisoning again, it'll disappear. And so will their IBS. So I have a patient where he came in, he says, look, I've been feeling great for six months. I stopped all my medications. I said, well, let's measure antibody. And it was all normal. So uh, if you don't get food poisoning again, the CDTB antibody will decline. Uh, the autoimmunity won't because you still have that protein in your body and you'll keep forming antibodies to it. With, and, and what are the treatment strategies here? So you, you've mentioned that you really have to be super mindful that you don't get food poisoning get, again. How do you, how do you do that? Well, so, well, first of all, you have to be careful what you eat. So, you know, if, if there's in California, we have an A, a B and a C on the restaurant as to the health inspector saying whether the restaurant is clean or not don't eat at a C restaurant. Uh, food trucks might not be the wisest choice for somebody with these antibodies, but more over travel is, is really important to be cautious. If you're going south of the border and you where E. coli is more common, then you have to take extra precautions and just know what you can and cannot eat. Hot food, not cold food, things like that. Do you think doing something like a, a hydrochloric acid or even some like anti herbal antimicrobials kind of prophylactically would make sense if you were traveling or not really. Well, and some of my super high antivinculins, they don't even do that. They take prophylactic low dose antibiotics. Um, we give them half a pill of rifaximin with every meal so that they never get food poisoning because if they do, they'll just be so much worse to treat, harder to treat. That makes sense. And do you see those antivinculin antibodies come down over time? That's kind of like the hope and the dream that I would imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the holy grail is if we can get those antibodies out of the bloodstream, because I have some preliminary data that suggests that that would cure this. We don't have that yet, um, but uh, we're still looking for the right way to, to treat that part of it. 
But in terms of your question about whether they go down with time, the answer is yes, but very, very, very slowly. Um, and slowly, the number would be, I don't think your viewers or your listeners would appreciate that it could be 10 years or longer, because that's a frightening number. Uh, whereas the CDTB antibody, like you mentioned in the earlier scenario, if only that was elevated, then in one and a half to two years, you might be back to your normal self. Um, but vinculin just lasts for, for a long time, hard to get down. And do you find that those antibodies correlate with symptoms? And I, I say that as somebody with autoimmunity, I try not to get too caught up in like tracking my, my antibodies because that doesn't really help me out mentally too, too much. I'm just like, I have to go based off of my symptoms. Do I feel good? Great. Then I, I have to kind of like disregard some of the blood, the blood work sometimes. Yeah. So an autoimmune disease is sort of kind of two buckets. There are markers of autoimmune disease, sort of like rheumatoid factor or things you may be familiar with. And then there's the antivinculin. And what, what we discovered with this antibody is it's causative. So it is a marker of the degree of severity. The higher it is, the worse you are. And the lower it is, the better you are, which means that we have an opportunity to cure IBS if we can get rid of that antibody, I think. But, you know, devil's in the details. We have to figure it out, do it, and make sure that that's true. It can happen. Okay. Super, super helpful. Um, that's all such great information. I want to switch gear. Well, first of all, what's the name of the test? So listeners can, can yeah, no problem. have that information. The test is the second generation test, which is called IBS Smart. It's more accurate uh, it, and, and more uh, better test dynamics. Okay. Thank you. Now, I, um, you've said things recently, this is based on new research that has absolutely knocked my socks off when it comes to SIBO. So I'm switching gears a little bit here because I do want to cover this. Those two things. One, SIBO is not necessarily translocation of bacteria. And I was like, oh dear, <laughs> oh dear. Um, okay. And then two, PPIs, we can't blame PPIs for SIBO any longer. So do you care to expand on those two talking points? So remember, I correct myself as well over time with science. So, you know, if you would ask me to speak 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I might say, oh, well, you know, the bacteria of the colon are moving into the small bowel. And somebody might've heard me said that, say that. That is not how it works, as we've learned over time. So basically, as the gut is slower, um, there are certain organisms of the gut that just love the slowness and flourish and basically are bullies and beat everybody else out of the system. And that's E. coli and Klebsiella. And so those two really account for SIBO and they, make, they, they cause what's called SIBO. But as you know, SIBO has been redefined by us because it was never labeled properly. So there's SIBO and then there's intestinal methanogen overgrowth, which is EMO. And we can get into that later and now hydrogen sulfide. But, but all of that is um, we, we learn as we go and we adjust as we go because we have to use the science to guide us in the next, next places we go. And then I've lost track of your second question. So I'm sorry for that. Well, let's stick a pin in that. Cause I've got two follow-up questions. I probably should have done a better segue, which is to say, we were just talking about post-infectious IBS. Is there is, what is the overlap, if any, between post-infectious IBS and SIBO? Well, it's a continuum. So here you are, you're normal. You get a food poisoning. 
Three months later, you appeared to have recovered from the food poisoning, but suddenly you're starting to get intermittent diarrhea, bloating, abdominal pain, and then you walk into full-blown IBS. And what happened is those antibodies have slowly kind of deteriorated your system, your small bowel. Now the gut's not flowing correctly. And as I just mentioned, when the gut's not flowing correctly, E. coli loves that. Klebsiella loves that. And they start to flourish in the small bowel. They were small in number before, and now they're super high in number. And that elevation in number gives you SIBO. So it's a continuum of the same process. So knowing both is sort of critical to how you're going to manage the patient. So E. coli and Klebsiella are commensal species of the small bowel, and they just get the opportunity to overgrow essentially. So think of it like this. If you, you got a patch of grass in your backyard and you're mowing it every week and the lawn looks fantastic, then you stop mowing it. All of a sudden, within three weeks, the weeds are uh, a foot tall and the grass is getting squashed out by the weeds. That's E. coli and Klebsiella. Don't cut the grass. You're not having good motility. You're not having good cleaning waves of the gut and the weeds are growing and the weeds are E. coli and Klebsiella and they're choking everything else out. And, and that's basically how it works. And so the lawnmower in this scenario would be the migrating motor complex. That's right. Exactly. And that's the, the wave. the migrating motor complex is what's not working much in IBS with SIBO. And we think the antivinculin antibodies by reducing the interstitial cells of Cajal, which are the pacemakers for the migrating motor complex, that it's ruining the wave. It's not letting it work properly. So my question when I heard this was, can we, if we see, if we're doing a stool test and we see overgrowths of, or elevations in E. coli and or Klebsiella, can we use that to infer an overgrowth in the small bowel as well? Or does it not work that way? Yeah. So this is stuff that we've been trying to wrestle with because um, if you know the human microbiome project starting in 2007 has been all about, oh, we found the bugs in the gut and based on stool. And what we published last year, uh, which really settles it is that the small bowel microbiome looks nothing, nothing like stool. Uh, even the, even the categories of bugs in the stool that are similar when you get down to the species and genus level are completely different. So you can't use what you find in stool to determine the composition of small bowel. I'm not saying stool testing is useless. I'm saying it can't be extrapolated to the small bowel because it's different there. I mean, I think that's a really important distinction for any clinicians that are listening, because there are some companies that are running stool tests that are kind of using it as an indirect way to maybe potentially give a nod to SIBO. But I'm like, it, it, stool testing, in my understanding, it's not diagnostic criteria for SIBO. Well, think of it this way, another way. Okay. I published a paper where I compared breath test to culture of the small bowel to sequencing of the small bowel, to the metabolomics of hydrogen production in the small bowel, and they all line up. Show me that study for stool testing. When they publish the study, I'm happy to do it. Uh, you can't just say it, you have to do the science and prove it. And, and that's the part that frustrates me because you know these tests are expensive. And, and if you make declarations that are untrue or unproven by, by science, then that's concerning. And I think, I think, uh, I'm not calling it out as maybe they have the science in their, in their, you know, binder, but I'd love to see it so that we can be confident in what, what's going on with those tests. 
Yeah, for sure. And I do want to get into the breath test a little bit, but the second question I had asked is the whole PPI in SIBO link, because for a very long time we were blaming SIBO or we were saying that PPI use was contributing to SIBO. Yeah. I mean, this was oh, a lot of surprises in our science and this was a bit of a surprise because, because we had shown in, you know, the last decade that when people on PPI don't have more positive breath tests, but still the argument was out there. Well, yeah, but breath test this, breath test that, um, you know, maybe it's an indirect measure, but we actually looked at it in the reimagined study where we're getting juice from the small bowel and there's no SIBO with PPI. There are things that happen with PPI, which maybe are beyond this, this podcast, like for example, reductions in clostridium. And we know that PPI allows bad clostridium to come in. So maybe that's really an important thing of PPI and, and, and maybe a risk for C. diff, for example, but we didn't see SIBO. And the other thing I'd point to is, you know, people talk about taking acid as a treatment for SIBO, like uh, HCL uh, administration. I can tell you that it, it shouldn't work. It probably doesn't work. And in the case of methane, we'll make more methane. And so I wouldn't recommend it. And in the case of, um, uh, of other organisms that use hydrogen to make their gases, it's possible that you basically inflame things more. So I'm not a fan of those therapies anymore. Um, you know, now that we have more science, I think we understand it better. Well, shit. That's my reaction to that. Um, would you, do you think that, I mean, you, you see far more patients clinically speaking than I see in my little practice, but would you say that if somebody was taking hydrochloric acid as a, a treatment strategy or an intervention and their symptoms were improving, is that maybe, is that maybe, <laughs> is that maybe okay? <laughs> well, if their symptoms are improving, then uh, you know, you, I don't argue with improvement. I'm not a big yeah. fan of probiotics, which may be something we get into later. But if a patient comes back to me and says, look, I took this probiotic and I'm 90% better, who am I to argue with whatever's going on there? Um, I'm not saying probiotics are dangerous or they're probably relatively safe. So if it's working, hey, great. But what I'm saying is that I don't know that it does much. Uh, maybe in certain circumstances, it's beneficial. Like, for example, if you don't have enough acid in your stomach, you need acid to break down proteins to uh, um, sort of denature proteins so they can be digested. And digesting faster is good because it gives you the food and less for the bacteria. So there's, there's some rationale to acid. But what I'm saying is that acid doesn't treat SIBO. Uh, it, it, it doesn't really treat it as, as far as I'm concerned. For sure. Okay. That's helpful. Um, you know, why don't we, since you brought it up, go into the probiotic discussion just a little bit. Um, specifically, I would love to ask you, because I'm seeing this all over the place, Acromancia is now being sold as a probiotic supplement. That's like, you know, brand new to me. Um, in fact, I found out about it on Instagram. <laughs> I got an Instagram ad. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, I think there's benefits to each of these organisms. I, I guess I'm, I'm challenged by, because I understand the microbiome more, and I, I'm going to say more because there's still more to learn. Um, I feel like what we need to do is to provide the balance. If I've learned something in SIBO is that it isn't about getting rid of methanogens and methane. It isn't about getting rid of E. coli, wiping it out. It's about getting it into balance. And, and anytime you use one organism 
to regain balance, it's not balance because balance is a thousand different organisms. So I, I think I think to to imagine one organism suddenly making everything in harmony is naive in 2021 uh, because of what we know of the microbiome and how diverse it is. Um, but to, but I, I'm not going to argue acromancia has benefits. Prevotella has benefits. Uh, there are, these are beneficial organisms that we're starting to learn about. But to just put that in a capsule alone may be a little overly simplistic. Um, I'm not going to say it's bad. I'm, I'm just going to say it's overly simplistic and, and I need to see more data. That's all. So with that in mind, are you more a fan of, or are you even a fan of using things like functional fibers or even like polyphenols as a way to restore balance? Or do you even, I mean, obviously we have to be careful with, with fibers, with SIBO, but kind right. of generally speaking. Yeah. I mean, it's in the SIBO arena, anything that feeds the bacteria is problematic. So I agree. I, I think probably that those are not wise in that context, but, but restoring balance in some way, whether it's through food or diet or nutrition or fiber as part of food. And I think that's the way of the future. Um, maybe we'll have a, a pill that has the magic mix for people, uh, sort of like a fecal transplant, except like, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm getting slightly off topic, but maybe not, the small bowel is different than the colon, right? So maybe we need a probiotic or maybe a fecal, a transplant, but small bowel composition as opposed to colonic composition. Um, and, and those things are coming. It's just we have to know more science first, but, but I think, I think the future is either some cocktail of probiotics or some diet, uh, manipulation to keep the balance and harmony in the gut. Because look, if no, we don't put food in the gut, the bacteria don't grow. They're not there. So what we eat does everything. And we're going to quickly interrupt this discussion to shout out one of our show sponsors. As a reminder, the support of our sponsors is what allows the Functional Nutrition Podcast to continue to pump out new content to you. So we always thank them. We hope that you support them too. Local friend, Coyote River Hemp Co. I've known the owner, Ryan, going all the way back to my health food store days over a decade ago. His company is committed to regenerative farming practices. Listen, not all CBD products are created equally, so make sure you are being a savvy consumer when you're purchasing CBD. I highly recommend their Coyote River 500 milligram hemp oil, and you can use that to titrate the dose up or down. We always recommend starting low and working your way up slowly over time. You can head to their website and use code FUNK10 to save 10%. That's coyoteriverhempco.com. And then also, I'm always looking for kind of quick and dirty ways to pack in extra nutrition, polyphenols, antioxidants, fibers for my gut, and even herbs for my stress response, like the more adaptogens, the better, which is why I use Organifi powders every day, several times a day. I love to put them into my water. This is great if you're one of those people that struggles to just get enough hydration, get enough water. And if you feel like water's really boring, these powders can zhuzh it up for you. My kiddo loves them. She feels like she's drinking juice. I also throw them into my smoothies just as a way to get some extra nutrition. My personal favorite is the red juice. So it has lots of different red powders Things like acai, 
cranberry, pomegranate, strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, all of those polyphenol-rich red and blue powders. And if you've listened to the show or you've seen me on Instagram, you've heard me talk about the benefits of these powders. They feed a very unique and particular type of bacteria in your gut called Acromantia. Acromantia is a keystone player. It's wicked important for keeping your gut healthy and strong. It prevents leaky gut. It also is very important for metabolic health and insulin signaling and controlling blood sugar. Now, unfortunately, I do a lot of stool tests on people and see that acromantia is low, sometimes even below detectable limits. That's a real bummer. Some of the bacteria in our guts are little piggies. They'll eat anything. And then some bacteria are more like snobby foodies that will only eat specific things. This acromantia bacteria loves to eat red polyphenols. So the more red foods you can eat, the better. And getting red powders is super important as well. So the red juice is something that you can grab super easy and it's low sugar. All of Organifi's powders are under three grams of sugar per serving. And most of them offer up fiber as well to counteract any spike in blood sugar. So highly recommend, I throw them in my smoothie so I can pack in a bunch of veggies without adding a ton of fruit that might spike my blood sugar. And I can still make them sweet and palatable. Go to Organifi's website, Organifi.com. You can click the link in the show notes. Be sure to use the code FUNK. It will save you 20% off of every single order you ever place. You get a good deal and you get to support all the good things in your body too. How about working on it from a circadian rhythm standpoint or, you know, like eating meals at the same time, leaving space between meals, doing like some gentle intermittent fasting? Are you a fan? I love intermittent fasting. I think it's one of the best things to do because even if you're not, uh, uh, for example, the IBS patient, as we talked about with SIBO, they don't have the cleaning waves or they have them less frequently. So you've got to give more time so that whatever can happen will happen. If you can have two cleaning waves in 18 hours, which is terrible, it's a very low number, um, at least it happens. It will help the patient. Um, but for people who are normal, cleaning waves are great. Uh, the other thing that, you know, remember when we were a thousand years ago, we didn't have 7-Eleven, we didn't have potato chips. We weren't sitting at a desk with candies or bagels in the break room and eating constantly, n- nibbling. So every time you put food in your mouth, you stop the cleaning waves. So even normal people aren't cleaning up enough. So the more you can kind of space out meals and eat like we did a thousand years ago, um, then maybe that's more healthy. I don't know. You know, we didn't live past 50. So maybe, you know, it's hard to know. It's hard <laughs> to know. But, but my point is that I think the human body was built and designed for feast and famine. And, uh, and now we just eat all the time. What about um, fluid? Does that interrupt the migrating motor complex or those cleaning waves? Yeah. So we find that you can drink as much coffee or water as you want, and it won't change because it doesn't have, it doesn't activate or deactivate the cleaning waves. Um, Like I wouldn't drink a gallon of coffee, but I, you know, if you drank a cup of coffee in the morning, that wouldn't change anything as long as there was no milk or sweetener or, or any kind of sugar in it. Okay. That's good to know. So let's talk about, um, I definitely want to chat with you about the trio smart, the breath test. Um, 
let's just get right into it because, the, you know, historically speaking, how we have tested for SIBO is to use a breath test looking at hydrogen and methane. Uh, but there has been this like third player on the, you know, on the block. And <laughs> I feel like I've had to do like these weird back alleyway, you know, that we're looking for potentially a flat line on a breath test, which I want to ask you about, because I feel like that's misinterpreted, like what's really a flat, true flat line. Mm-hmm. Um, or looking for things in the stool, like the, like the big hydrogen sulfide producers, like the, the desulfo vibrio piger. And then I've even just given people like Pepto-Bismol and then like, take this when you're really symptomatic. Does it help? Like it's just, we've been like grasping at straws and now we actually have a test. So let's talk about what the heck is hydrogen sulfide and why did it require a whole new test? Well, so first of all, back, back in the day when I first started my research in 25 years ago, sadly dating myself, but, but breath tests were considered, oh yeah, we've been doing it this way forever. There was hydrogen and there was methane on the breath test. When I arrived before that, there was only hydrogen. And I was questioning, why did they add methane? And we don't even know what it means, but it's on the breath test. So it wasn't until we started doing research, we realized that methane was causing constipation and the, the methane became a value add even though it was added before it was considered valuable. Um, but every time we looked at hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen could be 100, hydrogen could be 50, both are positive, didn't matter. The patient was equally symptomatic with methane. The higher your methane, the more constipated you were. So that became very obvious and very clear very quickly. But part of the criticism of hydrogen breath tests was, well, hydrogen doesn't correlate with anything. That's because hydrogen is just a fuel for the methanogens and a fuel for the hydrogen sulfite sulfate uh, produced production. But we never measured hydrogen sulfide for a lot of reasons, really difficult, because hydrogen sulfide is uh, a chemically reactive gas. So you have to, uh, first of all, you have to develop a system of collecting it so that the gas doesn't react with what's in there and disappear. So you measure it and you throw it in the machine and it's zero because the bag or the cylinder doesn't capture it or hold onto it, that's a problem. And then you have to develop an instrument that can measure it. And the current instruments have a lot of reasons why they would not be capable of measuring it. Even adding a sensor couldn't be done on the, on the existing instruments. So uh, we had to develop a new engineering of a whole I- instrument to measure all four gases, the carbon dioxide being the calibrating gas. And then you had to do studies to show, well, what's the number that cut the, you know, the cutoff? So this was you know, four or five, six years of work trying to get to this point. Um, of having a test that's validated, that you can ship by mail, that you have the proper collection system and a proper instrument to measure it so it's accurate. Got it. Okay. And there that now exists. Yes, it exists. And um, I've been using it. And there's two, one question, this is like total, totally self-indulgent. So there's two different substrates. There's glucose and lactulose, correct? Right. Do you have a favorite? Like if you were like, if you have the option, do this one. So Why is there tricky, two? There's a tricky answer to that question. There are gastroenterologists in this country who swear that they will only use glucose. And the argument there is that glucose gets glucose will never reach the colon. So before our data that came out last year that proved that the hydrogen's coming from the small bowel, um, it, it, there was a belief that if you took lactulose, which never gets absorbed, it's just getting to the colon, the colon bacteria fermenting it. And then you get this hydrogen burst on, on, the, on the scene of the breath test. And it's really in the colon. 
Well, we proved that that's not true, but 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 never never mind that. It, you, there's still people who believe that glucose will never reach the colon uh, because it gets absorbed so quickly. The problem with glucose, it gets absorbed so quickly, it's never going to get into the past three feet of the small bowel. So if you had SIBO in the jejunum or the ileum, you're not going to see it with glucose. So glucose, if you're positive, it's very specific. That means you definitely have overgrowth all the way up, up to the gills uh, because uh, you were, you know, the glucose got to it. Uh, whereas lactulose gets all the way down and you can see all the people with overgrowth. So I prefer lactulose. The other challenge with glucose versus lactulose is we had to make sure that people who didn't believe in lactulose or didn't think the science was there yet had the opportunity to do the glucose test. Uh, and then also the North American consensus guidelines say that it's acceptable to do either. Um, lactulose though requires a prescription for some strange reason has never been changed. And so for some prescribers, for example, functional medicine folks who may not have prescribing rights in certain states, they can order glucose, but they cannot order lactulose because of the prescription. Uh, and so that gives an opportunity for people to do breath testing um, based on their prescription ability. So could you see, uh, I mean, in theory, you, you could potentially see more false negatives using glucose. That's correct. For hydrogen. But what we see with hydrogen sulfide <laughs> is it's a little in between. So methane, it's either there or not. It doesn't matter what substrate you use, glucose or lactose. So that's beneficial. So you'd see that for sure. Hydrogen, you might miss a lot of patients if you do glucose. Hydrogen sulfide is sort of halfway between. So a lot of people will be positive regardless of the substrate you use. Uh, but there is a little bit of jacking up of hydrogen sulfide with, um, with the carbohydrate, with the drink, and specifically lactose. Okay. All right. Can we talk about, because there's, when we think about hydrogen dominant SIBO, when we think about emo, and then when we think about hydrogen sulfide SIBO, you know, there are different players that really require different treatment strategies. That's exactly right. Do, is there any, any type of thing you see on a test where you're like, oh man, this is not good. <laughs> like, like, oh, this is going to be a while. I mean, I, I think pretty much across the board, most people would agree that the hydrogen dominant SIBOs are easier to treat, whereas emo less so. And I don't know, I don't, hydrogen sulfide seems to be kind of a bristly bear too. Yeah, hydrogen sulfide is a bristly bear because we don't have any published studies to say, oh, look at this, aha, this is brilliant. Uh, although we've completed one, uh, we haven't, can't talk about it yet. So as I promised on previous podcasts in the spring, we're working on it. We, you know, we, we need something to treat H2S, but, but you're right. Hydrogen's easier. Uh, if I see methane over hundred, I know it's going to be a, a bear to treat. It's just the higher the methane is, the harder it is to sort of root out for reasons we don't altogether understand. But we, so rifaximin is what we use off-label. It's, it's an approved treatment for IBS, but uh, not exactly for SIBO, but we use rifaximin for that in our practice. Uh, based on a double-blind study for methane, we use rifaximin plus neomycin. Um, but as you pointed out, for hydrogen sulfide, we do add bismuth to rifaximin and have had some good success with that. But I've had two patients this week where all the, the other two gases are completely normal, but hydrogen sulfide is elevated and they have diarrhea. So those two patients, two patients were not flatliners. So that's interesting. And they would have been called normal. And they would have been told, well, we can't figure out what's going on with you. Here's Imodium. 
but we found hydrogen sulfide. So just two in a week, that's amazing. Uh, and these patients are going to benefit from some therapies that we provide to them. So it's a quite, I, this is the only test I do now because, because it gives me the full you know, picture. Yeah, of course. Can you explain to listeners who might not understand this whole flatline thing that, that we keep saying, why, you know, before the trio smart came out, why would we see a flat line for hydrogen, a flat line for methane and deduce, oh, there might be hydrogen sulfide going on here. Yeah. So it starts with the methane story. So we would have patients where they'd have methane of 50 or 60 and hydrogen like zero all the way across but you need hydrogen to make methane. You can't make methane without hydrogen. So it meant that all the methane producing organisms were located everywhere there was hydrogen and eating it all. Uh, but then we had flat lines where methane is zero and hydrogen is practically zero across the board of the breath test. That's not possible because the most common organisms in everybody's gut um, are hydrogen producing organisms. So it's not possible that you can be zero. So something's eating the hydrogen and, and we suspected always, and often these patients would be like diarrhea patients. Uh, so we suspected that hydrogen sulfide was there. We just couldn't measure it. We didn't have a tool. And so that's part of the motivation for, for building this thing is to figure out these patients uh, that were getting left behind. Um, do you ever see constipation with hydrogen sulfide? Yes, we do. So if you look at the graphs for hydrogen sulfide and for methane, and, and there is overlap. So there are meth some methane people who have uh, diarrhea for reasons that are not clear. And there are some hydrogens, but it's the minority. So I do get that question. There are some people, some doctors who said, oh, look, I got a constipated patient, but they're hydrogen sulfide positive. Um, and what we saw in our initial study, if you have hydrogen sulfide and you have methane in the same patient, methane dominates. So if your methane's over 10 and your hydrogen sulfide's over three, the effect of methane on constipation is stronger than the effect of hydrogen sulfide on diarrhea. So um, you will be constipated in that scenario. Oh, that I did not know that. That is, this is- Methane's, methane's a winner. Okay. Now, if, you, if, if on the trio smart, hydrogen sulfide is negative, so that's, we're looking at the small bowel there. Can there still be a hydrogen sulfide uh, like in the colon that's causing a problem? Well, we're gonna have to figure out how to label hydrogen sulfide. Remember SIBO is that hydrogen part. EMO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth is methane because methane can be in the colon, methanogens can be in the colon and the small bowel. And we think it's similar for hydrogen sulfide that it can be in the colon and the small bowel. So. I don't know what we're going to call it. ISRO, intestinal sulfate reducing organisms overgrowth. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to figure out a, an acronym. I, I think I just revealed an acronym on your show <laughs> before publishing it. We can edit it out or. No, no, no. I'm like joking. I made take. that. I just made that up now. But, but wouldn't it be the interesting if that was the one we come up with? That's going to be my claim to fame now. Exactly. You heard it here first. Um, I, I just had a question. Shoot. Oh, well, the, the other thing that it's probably important to know, it's not like there's one bacteria that produces this gas. There's different types of bacteria that produce hydrogen sulfide. Right. For the hydrogen side, we're focusing on E. coli and Klebsiella, although there are others, but those are the ones that are overgrowing. We've proven that. 
For the methanogen side, we've proven it's methanobrevibacter smithii. One bug, so which makes it quite simple or simpler to at least do research there. With H2S, there's a lot. It's, it's more complicated. There's, as you mentioned earlier, desulfovibrio. There's fusobacterium. There's bilophila. There's, and, and, and it goes on and on. There's probably 20 different characters that can potentially produce hydrogen. Even E. coli can sometimes produce hydrogen sulfide, some strains of E. coli. So it's more wonky, if that's a word, and, and a little bit more difficult to sort out and more complex. So I guess why? Why is this happening? Why why is there an overgrowth? Is is it dysbiosis? There's just there's just well, we, we, we think on the hydrogen sulfide side, it's part of that food poisoning story. So um, now I'm getting into black belt level two here, uh, SIBO. But as the hydrogen goes up in your in your gut, the hydrogen actually inhibits E. coli. So E. coli doesn't like all that hydrogen around. It sort of starts being pickled. So E. coli would love it if a hydrogen sulfide producer was there because it would take the hydrogen out so that the E. coli could grow even more. And, and that's sort of the dynamics of the system. Plus the hydrogen sulfide producers love it because they're getting free energy from the E. coli and uh, they make energy from converting hydrogen to hydrogen sulfide. So it, it, it's a mutualistic situation. And so we think that the food poisoning progression to hydrogen sulfide is the same as hydrogen. How interesting. Okay. Um, and that's why it's not so easy. <laughs> it's not so black and white, easy to treat. Right. Right. Exactly. A, lot of, a lot of things going on. All right. We're treating it with a hammer right now, but I hope to treat it with a laser at some point. Okay. Um, a couple more questions for you. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, with methane, um, you discovered the use of low, uh, lovastatin for methane. Um, what the heck, like, can you explain the mechanism of action to me? Like, what, how is that a thing? Well, think about lovastatin. It's made by a fungus living in a swamp. I don't think the fungus in the swamp is making lovastatin for your cholesterol. I guarantee it. <laughs> uh, it's making it for some other purpose. And, and what they found in cows is that they wanted to lean the meat of cows. So they were giving cows lovastatin to make the meat leaner for consumption. And what they found is the cows are producing less methane. And they, so then the environmentalists came in and say, stop giving lovastatin to cows because you're putting chemicals in the cow's body. And the cow lobby says, yeah, but it helps the environment. And they won because it does reduce methane emissions from cows. And so they keep giving lovastatin to cows. But we took that science and said, well, hey, let's check it in human stool and see if it will reduce. And it literally instantly stops methane production. We figured out which enzyme it's blocking. But what we, what we tried to do is to make the lovastatin non-absorbed and give it as a capsule. And uh, it didn't work very well. The formulation wasn't quite perfect. And so it was getting absorbed and cholesterol was going down, but the patient's constipation wasn't improving, but it still works. We, we, we still have to continue that story because I believe that it's going to work. So it's, you're, you're still tweaking it right now. Are you using it clinically with people? Uh, rarely in patients okay. where that over hundred methane, I'll try it. If, even if I can squeak down the methane some in the patients where we did see it work, it was literally within three days, the methane dropped to nothing. So uh, it's, it's fantastic. We just need to iron out in order to create a better treatment for this. We need to iron out some of the details. 
So I, I mean, cause it might be a situation where you're like robbing Peter to pay Paul because you, you don't want to, you know, smash down cholesterol. If you, you know, that's not, that exactly. has we, we, we want it to be non-absorbed, completely non-absorbed. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then my last question for you is I know sometimes, um, with low motility, um, the use of prokinetics can be very helpful. Do you ever use, or I, I guess I should say one, what do you tend to use and see the best success with, but do you ever use LDN for that? Yeah, so LDN has sort of two properties that people tout uh, for SIBO. One is it's anti-inflammatory, uh, which maybe an autoimmune disease is a good thing. Uh, and the second is has some prokinetic properties. But, you know, I sort of compare LDN to low-dose erythromycin, which is something we've used for 20 years to try and keep SIBO down. So we use it after treatment. So you want to get the SIBO down and then try to keep it down with diet and, and LDN or LDE, low-dose erythromycin. But now we've got stronger kids on the block. We have uh, Motegrity, which is a stronger prokinetic, and I'll cut that into halves and quarters and get a much better response uh, in terms of prevention. And then a new, newer, not a newer kid, but an old kid that we bring back is Mestinon we're using in some patients that has been really, really good for some people. Uh, so we have a fairly good chest of tools for prokinetic, prokinetic action. And um, I lied. There was one more question that I'm going to sneak in. <laughs> so your thoughts on the low FODMAP diet, I, I will just say that I don't use it often um, because the cohort of people that I see are usually people who have been um, restricting their food, long-term dieters. And I just think we have to be mindful of like the lived human experience. It's not just like, oh, this works great. Let's do it. Um, but do you use that? And there's kind of two schools of thought that like one, you feed the bacteria that you're trying to kill the other one that you starve. Like, where do you fall on that spectrum? Are you all over the place? You're, you're speaking my language because the whole point of treating patients is to try to get them to the point where they're living their life like a normal human being. Uh, I mean, I don't want to tie people up to a chair and be there feeding them in order to help their SIBO. Because, you know, if you have a low FODMAP diet, try finding a restaurant where you can get a meal. It's impossible. It's just, it's just very challenging. So we actually came up with a low fermentation diet, which takes into account human life and that you have to do what you have to do in life and go to restaurants. And so it's restrictive, but not overly restrictive. And it works quite well. Uh, also, low FODMAP causes uh, malnutrition if you do it too long. And now they've recognized that and they're now saying, well, you got to reintroduce after a month. And, and so the low FODMAP diet has become more complicated because you have to bring foods back. Um, but, but to your point, I mean, diet's very important. We do, uh, you know, prescribe diets to patients and, and keep a close eye on it. You mentioned something just at the end that you have to feed the bacteria to kill it. I don't, I mean, if a patient's coming to my office and I say, are you, are you on a diet? Yes. Are you feeling sick? Yeah. My symptoms are bad. I don't start giving them guar gum or giving them something to feed the bacteria so that I, the antibiotic will work better. They're as miserable as they can be right now and whatever they're doing. So I said, don't change your diet. Just take what I'm giving you. And then after you're done the treatment, then we'll prescribe the diet. 
Okay. That's really helpful to know. I just, I just went to the, I had to go to the walk-in a few weeks ago for some like random pelvic pain that turned out to be nothing, but she was like, I'm not really sure what it is, but here, why don't you try this? And it was a printout of a low FODMAP diet. I'm like, really? You're just going to indefinitely put me on this like super restrictive diet. Cause I told you my tummy hurt, but, but that's what happens, Aaron. I mean, I've got patients coming to my office who, you know, I can measure things in their blood and things are really bad now. And they've been on it for two years because they never stopped. And, and you can't just hand the low FODMAP diet to somebody and then not have a follow-up. Um, it's, it's more than that. And I certainly hope prescribers who are listening or anybody who's listening, uh, you know, understands that don't do that. Absolutely. Not an indefinite program. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like you said, now we know we're seeing that there's, you know, downstream side effect to the microbiome when you're restricting their food source. long term. Exactly. <laughs> Not great. Um, thank you so much. This is one of my favorite conversations I've had to date on the podcast. I would love for you to just share with folks where they can find more of your stuff, your work, um, and anything that you would love people to know. Well, we continue to publish, so it's all out there and we do, uh, have a Twitter handle at Mark Pimentel MD and, and you, we usually, you know, broadcast what we've published on a given moment uh, out there. So, um, and of course, we talked about IBS Smart and Trio Smart, and things are evolving in that direction. And those websites contain information about those tests as they continue to be published. So, there's a lot of a lot of places to look, and uh, it's been a pleasure. I actually enjoyed this very much. So, thanks for all the amazing questions. I was super prepared, and we will link to all those resources in the show notes so everybody can find them. So, thank you so much. Sounds great. Take care. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.